Hey everybody, welcome to Heterodox Americana. This is a show about thinking outside the box and examining the conventional wisdom that informs how we think and shapes how we see the world around us. The question that we're ultimately trying to get at here is, how do our unexamined ideas impact our ability to thrive as human beings? And it's our intention to unpack some of these ideas, take a fresh heterodox perspective that hopefully leads us somewhere new. My name is Raphael Freeman, and I'm one of your hosts. And I'm Angie Backus, another one of your hosts. So, you know, of the many things that have come to light during, um, you know, during the pandemic, um, and, you know, to, to be completely transparent, to me, it seems a little bit disingenuous to try to talk about anything other than that, because obviously it's what is on everyone's lips. But uh, one of the things that has come to light, I think, is really the dismal state uh, in which we find our healthcare system. Um, today, you know, even more, it seems worth talking about it because we're watching the, the states and the cities who are all looking for support for respirators and, you know, the, the kind of failures and the ability to, you know, to, to, to manufacture and, and distribute those respirators in time. Um, and we're, you know, not just unprepared, but like so grossly unprepared and maybe even sabotaged, right? You could make the argument that, um, that we've been sabotaged, but, uh, but so grossly unprepared that it, it's, it's, a it's a failing that I'm hoping all Americans see, um, that, that we're, our, our medical system is, it's in a dismal state. Yeah, I don't know if we'll ever be able to look at it without having this as a reference again. Right. Um, which is actually kind of good news. I mean, in the bleakest of news, um, because we can't. It's you know, I've read articles where it says the genie's out of the bottle now. Like, there's no going back. We can't yeah. deny this anymore. Um, and so this is kind of unprecedented. Um, What's going to happen? I, I don't know, but I don't think we could ever tiptoe. I mean, yeah, I also, even to, I was going to say, I don't think we can turn a blind eye to this, but I think my fear is that we actually could. Right. You know, it's that same thing where when things start, when the, uh, the machine starts to crank the way that the machine always has known how to crank. Do we go back and say we need to fix it? And that's what scares me. So, you know, I have a similar fear. Uh, I know that people's attention span is very short, uh, especially us here in the United States, that all it takes is really, you know, the next episode of, you know, fill in the blank show, and then people will forget. I'm, I'm One of the real, I think, kind of material differences that will happen this time around that I'm hoping might make a real difference mm-hmm. is... The fact that people are actually going to die, yeah, um, and it, it's it, it's like this unfortunate kind of part that is built in into you know the just the way that this is going to go, but so many people will you know immediately lose loved ones, and you know a wider circle of people will have lost friends, um, and you know whoever it's going to be is. You know, it's a mystery. Uh, I think in the beginning we were thinking um, people of a certain age or people with uh, certain underlying health conditions, and all of that has proved to just not be the thing that you can rely on. Uh, there was a 17-year-old kid, I want to say in Lancaster, California, 
or something like that, who ended up, he was the first uh, person under the age of 18 to die in the United States uh, of, of coronavirus complications. And, and so, the, you know, the part that seems clear is, is that you, you don't know who's going to beat it. Uh, this is a person who didn't have insurance, and even that complicated, you know, the care that he got. But uh, I think it's going to affect enough people, touch enough people, um, that we would be remiss as a, as a citizenry if we didn't actually take a really hard look at what needs to happen on the other side of this. Well, you know what's interesting to me, and I haven't really thought all of this through, um, so this may sound simplistic, but bear with me, uh, everyone, is that, um, you know, initially the fear was uh, these tests and what was going to be covered, like how insurance covered it. That was opened up and it said that, you know, um, testing would be, uh, it would be open to everyone who needs testing. Right. Care then became um, everyone who needs care, um, although we can't completely depend on that. And then there's the stimulus package that was presented that, you know, is putting, which I'm grateful for, but giving people money and, you know, loans and mortgage freezes and, you know, what it's like, it's in the trillions, 1.2 trillion. I think it's like 2 trillion. There you go. Um, and I think in the past, I'd always kind of consider even Sanders' um, call to Medicare for all. And I, I would always, you know, even when he would say that, although I am one to um, really desire that because, you know, as an independent contractor, I don't get health insurance. The people that I love don't get health insurance. And I'd always thought, God, if you know, this is the underlying anxiety of the people that I know. Right. Really, if you're an entrepreneur, if you are an independent contractor or a small business owner, these are the things that you experience um, in this underlying anxiety if, if something were to go wrong, you right. would get cancer or something were to befall you. And so when Sanders would present this, like Medicare for all, I would think, there's no way that we can pay for this. There's an, how can we possibly do this? I think for the first time when I started to hear about the stimulus package, I was like, wait a minute. I mean... Yeah, I mean, there's money that can be produced. And I think for the first time, the reality hit me that this would be possible. We could have a country that provides health care for all. We can come up with trillions of dollars in an emergency to say we need to take care of these people. And I was like, oh, this this actually could work. So, you know, one of the one of the things this this is probably going to end up turning to a critique of, uh, of of both the United States and also, you know, kind of the cultural ways in which we think, uh, because I, I can't see avoiding it if we're going to end up going in this direction. But, um, you know, it's part of the, 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 the gamble that we do. Like Americans are always rolling the dice with, with our health. Um, I think probably more than anything else, we're like, I hope I hope we don't get sick. Uh, and, you know, while it's it, there are lots of Americans who are uninsured, I think like a third of Americans are uninsured. Mm. You still have all these other Americans who are underinsured, um, such that uh, e- even though they have really basic plans, those basic plans won't cover anything. Right. And so, the you know, the potential for just... It, well, here we are, right? We it's coronavirus, and now we're actually seeing you know the type of anxiety that's being produced in a country that's not cared for. Uh, Germany, on the other hand, um, 
And I gotta say, you know, Germany has like 56,000 cases uh, as of today. Today is what, the 29th or something like that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no idea what day is today. Today is uh, the 29th, yeah. Okay, so Germany has 56,000 cases. They, 400 people have died so far. That's like the low, that's like the craziest ratio in the world right now in terms of like how many people have gotten it to how few people have died. Right. Um, and, you know, part of that is that they're, like, you know, the Germans were immediately responding uh, Angela Merkel got out right in front of the chancellor of Germany. Um, she got right out in front of it and said, hey, we have a problem. This is what we're going to do. And there was no trying to deny that it was a problem. Um, but but in general, I think the way that we approach um, that we approach our relationship to government, right? So, you know, John F. Kennedy, and maybe I've said this on another show, but John F. Kennedy probably put it best. And, and, and I absolutely think that he had it wrong. But JFK says, ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And I think the way that the Americans think is that the government doesn't owe you anything. Right. But that's the reason that it's government. I mean, you know, I, I want to get too political sciencey with it. But if we think about the very heritage of, of English political thought, the idea, you know, we're coming out of England culturally, is to say that there's a relationship between the sovereign and, and, the, and the subjects. There's a relationship between the people and the ruler. Uh, and that relationship is I give up some of my sovereignty to you and you protect me in return. And if you are not protecting me, then you as the sovereign, you as the ruling power, whatever, you're not doing your job. That's right. Um, and some people understand this really clearly. Like the French are, I mean, they're chopping off the heads of kings. They are in the streets. When I, you know, I've been in France when the, the ATM, the people who refill the ATM machine with, mm-hmm. with dollars, with bills. Mm-hmm. Uh, they went on strike. And it seems like, don't get me wrong, the French will strike at anything. Uh, I've seen um, the the train workers strike. Uh, we had the yellow jackets or the yellow vest, uh, you know, a, a few years ago. But when I was there, uh, you know, the, the, the people who refill the ATMs, they organize and they go on a strike. And at first you're like, who cares, right? Like, oh, you know, would you going to not fill, refill the ATM? Uh, until all the ATMs are empty everywhere, and then you actually start to see how uh, how actually how critical that mm-hmm. was, um, and their economy started to tank. And eventually, you know, the ATM refiller workers or whatever they call themselves, like they they got what they wanted. But here, um, you know, we have enough consumerism. We got Netflix. We got entertainment. We're diverted, right? Right. Uh, and so, if you feel insecure. If you feel unsure about your your health or your mortgage or your rent or whatever it is, or even your job, Uh, even in this gig economy, you know, lots of people have really kind of unstable circumstances. Uh, But as a as a country, we we don't end up in the streets. You know, there was that one Occupy thing. um, But for the most part, we don't protest. We're not in the streets um, and we get what we get. Right. Yeah, um, yeah. I think the the idea that perhaps we could depend on our country, um, the sovereignty, to, you know, of our country to take care of us that that has always felt like that could be or should be something that we depend upon. Um, and I think I did feel a relief when um, the testing opened up to everyone. Right. There was a sense of okay, you know, we're doing the right thing. 
you know, I was reading this article that um, the insurance premiums could spike as much as 40% next year. So this this other thing can happen, right? If we don't take care right. of this, is that what's going to start to happen is things are going to get even worse, more expensive. I mean, who's going to eat the cost? Well, I mean, you know, so we... we listen, I... I... This will get oddly political because, and you know, the only reason I say oddly because Americans are attached to their like post Nixon, uh, HMO way of thinking about like health, right. um, and I don't think it has to be that way. But but also when I talk about taking to the streets, I think for a lot of people that seems like un-American um, that we're not out in the streets that way. But I, I mean that's really the that's the very core of how this country came to be. If it weren't for people who were willing to, I mean, if like if you think about the Boston Massacre, if you think about the Boston Tea Party, it was people who were willing to say, actually, this government is not doing for us what it should be doing. I mean, people wanted representation. And the fact that they were being taxed and there was no representation was just enough to make, you know, probably the elites, but they were, it's enough to make people mad. So are you suggesting this is, this is how we start to... Sh- change things i mean i i know in the past i mean just knowing you you haven't typically been the uh the protesting type in fact i've heard you talk about how protest for you don't seem to really move the needle so yes i think this is true Uh, but so here's what i'll say normally the protests that i see that i do you know because i'm very harsh on the on the people who want to rally and hold signs uh because those are mostly stupid right (laughs) they're stupid uh, and not only are they stupid, they, they are trying to protest things that that really can't be changed in the way like there are no levers. Right. Uh, so say, for example, once Donald Trump was uh, elected to office, if you want to protest that, that to me seems silly unless you want to just completely subvert the rule of law in this country. Like, it's not going to make a difference. I don't know what you're trying to do. So you're talking about protests that just are for pr- protests' sake. Like, saying somebody is saying, I don't like Donald Trump. He's not my president. We march in the street, knowing that he's not going to be removed from office. But maybe there are the protests that actually would do something. I, I just watched right. this uh, this documentary um that was produced by Michelle and Barack Obama called Crip Camp. It was about the uh, the, the Disabilities Act, and uh, I had no idea. But in the seventies, you know, this whole thing took took shape, and the way that the Disabilities Act was was um, was signed in was they just they did a sit in. You know, people right. in wheelchairs and people that were disabled took to the streets, blocked streets in New York, and changed the entire, right. you know, they, they got this whole thing going in the 70s. And Did they know what they wanted ahead of time? Oh, yeah. I mean, they, you know, right. they petitioned and they, you know, wrote articles and bills and, and fought for what they believed in. Right. But the protests all backed up what they're saying. This is what we want in place. And this is what we're going to do until we get what we want in place. So this is one of the, I think, the very successful ways to do it, right? Is one, have a broad... So I'm, I'm going to pull a little bit from Robert Putnam here, who wrote a book called uh, uh, Bowling Alone. But he was talking about social capital, and he talks about how social capital uh, gets... Um, how it gets uh, kind of um, pulled together. Like, you know, how you kind of bring people together with social capital, and also how it gets distributed. So one of the things is, have, have some goals in mind. If you know, so if you're protesting because you don't like something, 
this is a dumb protest. Like, it's not going to go anywhere. I don't like this. I don't like this. Like, whatever. Like, what are you doing? You're wasting your time. If you have a clear agenda, though, and when I say a clear agenda, I mean like a clear and realistic agenda. Like a path. Yeah, exactly. And lobbyists do this all the time. Um, But the idea of having a clear agenda, well, that's meaningful and it's super important if this thing is to ever work, the thing being the protest. Um, Also, you need a decent amount of mobilization, but probably not nearly as much. But if you're on the right side of the thing, if your agenda is clearly, you know, laid out, uh, you'll probably pick up some steam. And we have really good examples of that that has happened in the United States. Civil rights is probably, you know, the big, the biggest example. Um, but yeah, it wasn't just like, I don't like this, let's protest. It was organized, it was thought out, there was a clear agenda, and they were able to, you know, um, have a band of, of people from different, um, you know, social milieus, socioeconomic milieus, that use enough social capital to say actually we're we're moving this thing forward if we're going to do a protest that's and that's what the yellow vests look like in france too right it wasn't just one class of people who were saying we want something better they were saying actually we want these things and we're not going to take it anymore mm-hmm. that's what we need to do well hopefully yeah hopefully we could probably you know come up with something for you know healthcare in this country i i don't I mean, this is like, you know, one of those personal, like, pleading kind of agendas. But I just, I find it so unjust that people have to die because they can't get medical services in this country. Um, Just basic human rights. Like, if you're sick, you get to go to a doctor. Yeah, no, it's... um... So, you know, one of the the guys who I like to talk about, uh, who was a hedge fund manager, a former hedge fund manager, his name is Ray Dalio, $18 billion the guy's worth, uh, is one of the richest people in the country. And he wrote this book called Principles. Um, And, you know, it's super insightful, brilliant guys, probably a genius. Um, One of the things that Ray Dalio talks about, and I only kind of invoke him here because he's a Wall Street type. Mm -hmm. He's a Wall Street billionaire type person hedge fund manager and for him he says one of the most important and one of the most urgent things that we're facing as a country is inequality and to have a wall street so you know i, I maybe it doesn't hit everyone the same way that it hits me mm-hmm. um there's also an economist joseph stiglitz who also talks about um like really what inequality is doing both to our country and also to our, to our democracy right. Um, and if we don't understand the urgent problem that is happening um, and really how really how the inequality is going to undermine us as a country, uh, then we've taken our, our eye off the ball. So, that, so now I feel like I'm about to talk too much, but I, I wrote this article that is on the Heterodox Americana website. It was about Nokia, uh, the, the, the cell phone manufacturer. And how that they were applying a, a long-term strategy in a in a um, they kept to their strategy, even though the market was flexing. The market was doing something else. And I think if you don't look at the market and see what it's doing, uh, and you only concentrate on doing you, then you're missing like a vital piece of information. For me, that's what it, the the U.S. feels like it's doing. Mm-hmm. It's looking at oh, we've always done it this way. And it's not looking at the fact that the world is changing. Particularly China is expanding in ways that we don't quite understand. Uh, and if we think that we are going to have this country divided between the have and have nots and we'll still be able to compete with China? I just think it's the wrong, I think it's the wrong play. Mm -hmm. 
Well, I think we're getting close to time, right? You could say that. Close. Um, I just wanted to insert maybe a, a, a personal story of of someone I who's dear to me who lost um, she lost her partner um, a few months back, and <clears throat> he was an independent journalist, so he worked his butt off, um, but wasn't covered through health insurance, but worked probably you know one of the hardest working men I know. Um, and so at the end of his life, he had cancer and, you know, got a social worker and was starting to get these treatments. But what ended up happening is he accrued all these bills and right. eventually, you know, he, he died. And all of this money that was still owed um, because of, you know, this whole health care right. debacle. Um, he had this very small plot of land, I think in like West Virginia or Virginia or something like that, that... Um, was all it was all threatened he was going to lose everything like you know as kids like you know had very little that they were going to inherit from him but this property was some of it you know he had, he owned a home and all of that is up for for grabs sure. when you when you can't pay your bills so then you get to they get to seize all your property um and a, a gofundme was started i don't know how much money was um was made for the GoFundMe, but it was just this great stark picture of what I noted around somebody who, you know, gets cancer and, you know, it's one of these like out of left field things and doesn't have the money to, you know, to deal with this. And then everything that, that the guy owned that would go to his kids, um, he had two, um, gets seized. Right. You know, uh, of of all the people in the world who you know I would invoke, I, I hate to talk about Michael Moore because he's such a weirdo. Right? Mm. He is such a weirdo, and I, and and on top of that, I think he has weird politics, right? Um, but if you take somebody like Michael Moore, and obviously you know every storyteller, every film has its own bias and it has its own lens, and it's going to shape things the way that you know they want you to see it, right? And there's not a whole lot you can do about that. But Michael Moore had a documentary called Sicko. Mm-hmm. And it's about, and you know, you can take it with a grain of salt. I, I certainly suggest that everyone um, watch it, especially it's extremely germane as a lens to seeing where we are now, you know, right now at this COVID-19 coronavirus moment. Uh, but he, you know, he paints a picture for what it means for people who are underinsured and people who are uninsured, especially when, you know, listen, if you go to an emergency room, they, they got to treat you. Mm-hmm. But if you have cancer... That's an ongoing treatment. Right, that's an ongoing treatment. And, you know, the the choice is, well, you got to die. Mm-hmm. And that to me just seems like... It's so odd. It's like, you're, if the role of the sovereign is to protect us, you're not that's protecting right. us. That's right. Like, it's weird when the Germans are doing a better job. Because we know how they... We know what the Germans do. Mm-hmm. Well, what they did, anyway. Oh, I meant build, like, nice cars. Oh, right, yeah, they build great cars, right? Yeah, um... And the thing is, is though, we have the means. We have the means in this country to treat people. It, it's just, it's it's unbelievable to me that people can get sick and die of cancer when, you know, there's absolutely the means to treat people with cancer. So I absolutely agree. The means we have. What we don't have is the political will. There are lots of things we could do, mm-hmm. but there's no will to do it. Right. Uh, and, 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 you know, like a, a very real part, I don't know, we've made some gross mistakes in this country that are very hard to to, to, um, to recover from. Um, 
and in my own mind, the suburb, the intentional suburbanization of the United States is one of these types of errors that um, it has a, a sense of permanency, right? And here's why I think it's a, it's a big mistake, right? Obviously, so not so obviously, but suburbanization was horrible for race relations, right? Mm-hmm. But it was also horrible in terms of how people get to know each other. So um, it, it removed neighbor from neighbor. Right. E- even if there is no racial disparity, one of the things that the intentional suburbanization of the United States, that it removed people from each other. Mm-hmm. And now, and this was especially true, you know, in the era of McCarthy, um, are, are, we are a type of country where we mind our business. Mm-hmm. And even if the person down the road is is hungry, even if you know their name, like you might work at the same, uh, you know, institution. Uh, but you mind your business. And we are a country where we essentially mind our business. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just not one, obviously that's not community, but it's also not good for nationhood. It's not good for pulling together. Uh, and, you know, whenever we have a Katrina or a September 11th, you know, we can pull together a little bit for a month or so, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, undoing the, the kind of physical constraints that, that really separate people that's hard to undo, and, and I think we need a different we need a different approach. We need a different way of thinking about each other in this country. Absolutely, and it'll be interesting after this is all over if we have this, if we can kind of go toward the spirit of unity. I mean, you know, I think in all of our lifetimes, there's not anything that's been hit that's been so universal. Right. Um, we are all really radically in the same boat. So hopefully when we, um, you know, when we dock on the shore after this is all over, we know that we all spent this time together doing this thing and hopefully we can rethink some of these things. That's my hope. I mean, if we can have some redemption in all of this, that would be my hope. It would be a revamped understanding of our healthcare system and how we take care of people. That would be, that would be my hope too. There, there was an oil magnate from, from Texas, H.L. Hunt, Texas Oil. Um, it, you know, H.L. Hunt said said something that always stuck with me. He said that there are only there are only a, a few requirements for for success. One is you have to decide what it is that you want. Uh, then you have to decide the price that you're going to pay for the thing that you want. Um, and there's always a price to pay. You just have to resolve to pay it. Um, and I, for me, that that feels relevant because I think. There is a price that we have to pay as as a nation to get what we want. And the problem is so many people are unwilling to pay that price. And so we end up where we, you know, like I said earlier, we, we get what we get. For all of all of the, you know, all of the Bernie supporters that were so vocal and so, you know, kind of out in the streets, they didn't need Bernie for that. Mm-hmm. They could have been out in the street anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not what we do. And so... You know, there's a price to pay, and we mostly don't want to pay the price. Well, we're we're paying a very high price right now. Yes, Lord. So hopefully, hopefully this this will create some momentum for change. Um, you know, I I don't think this is a political cry. I think it is a humanitarian one, um, one that you know could be. I think, you know, now having witnessed what it's like to open up testing and and um, and all the care that people need in the time of crisis to know that this could be 
part of what we do as a system in general. Um, so yeah, maybe maybe there's going to be a new new thing after this, and it's going to be better than what we started with. Right. So hopefully we'll all collectively cross our fingers. And then more importantly, once things get back to quote unquote normal, we'll actually take the actions that are necessary to make sure that as to say, we'll take, we'll pay those prices uh, in order to make sure that we, we get the country that we want, not the country that, you know, is handed to us. That's right. So, um, you know, hope everyone's doing okay in these times of quarantine. That You're not driving each other crazy. Maybe just, uh, you know, do something different, like uh, maybe more hugs. I don't know, more hugs. Yeah, no, I, I want to say fewer hugs. Fewer. Uh, but if you, if you want to just, you know, if you get bored enough and, and with the self isolation that you want to just talk on the phone, just give me a call. We can talk. Mm, okay. Yeah. Anyway, okay. Uh, we'll talk to you in uh, a week from now. All right. See ya.